from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll look at yesterday's primary election results. Then we'll learn about rare February tornadoes that touched down in Wisconsin this month. We'll learn about the legacy of the Buffalo Soldiers, our nation's first park rangers. And they said, well, we have these uh, African-American soldiers who have just become professional soldiers. Let's have them monitor the parks. And that's how it all started. Plus, we'll explore some of Wisconsin's weirdest museums. It's a, a very odd place. I mean, all these places are great because they're so unique. And like you say, Wisconsin is very rich with them. So I had no trouble finding stuff to write about. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. We'll start with a look at the results of yesterday's primary election in Milwaukee. There were primaries for Milwaukee mayor, three common council seats, and one county board seat. The two candidates who received the most votes will advance to the general election on April 2nd. Joining me now to talk about the primary is WUWM reporter and editor Emily Files, who is also leading our 2024 Voter Guide Project. Hi, Emily. Hi, Joy. Thanks for having me. So who did Milwaukeeans vote for yesterday? In the mayor's race, there were three candidates, Cavalier Johnson, who is the incumbent, David King, and Aisha Griffin. And as expected, Johnson got by far the most votes. He got about 87% of the vote in preliminary results. And King got the second most, about 10%. Uh, Johnson has a much better financed campaign than King, so he's definitely the front runner heading into the April general election. But again, it'll be Johnson versus King for Milwaukee mayor. Sure. So what about the common council seats? Yeah, there were three common council seats that required primaries because they had more than two people running. In the 5th District, the top two finishers were Lamont Westmoreland, the incumbent, and challenger Bruce Winter. Stacy Smitter came in third, so he's out of the race. In the 7th District, there were four candidates— Jessica Curry and DeAndre Jackson got the most votes, with Randy Jones and Kenneth Hughes failing to get enough support to advance. Mm -hmm. And in the 11th district, Peter Bergelis and Josh Zepnik are moving forward, and Lee Whitting is not. So these common council seats are going to be on the ballot in April, along with actually some other districts, the all of the other districts. Right. Yeah, it's a lot. It's going to be a lot on the ballot in April. So all 15 common council seats and all 18 Milwaukee County board seats are up for election April 2nd. So everyone in the city will be voting for their representatives on those boards. Some of the races are competitive. Some only have one candidate running. And speaking of the county board, there was one board seat with a primary yesterday. District 18's Deanna Alexander was facing two challengers, Marty Hagedorn and Brandon Williford. Alexander and Williford got the most votes, so they'll face off in April. 
I mean, it's a it's a big election that's coming up in April. There are so many city and county offices that'll be on the ballot. Can you talk a little bit about what the Common Council and the county board actually do? Yeah, these are the lawmakers for the city and the county of Milwaukee. They decide how much funding goes to police, libraries, parks. They make decisions on the services and amenities that we get to enjoy in the city and county of Milwaukee. And they can also act as surrogates or advocates for the people in their district. If there's a giant pothole that you want to get filled or if you want a stop sign installed on your street, they can help advocate for those things to get done. So looking ahead to the April election, what other races will be on the ballot? Mayor, county executive, comptroller are some of them. Uh, Potentially the most competitive is the race for Milwaukee City Attorney. Incumbent Tierman Spencer is facing a challenge from State Representative Evan Goike. And Spencer has been mired in controversy for most of his time as city attorney. So that should be an interesting race to watch. And the April election will also include Wisconsin's presidential preference vote when Wisconsinites can vote for the Republican candidate they want to be the party's nominee. And of course, after the April election, uh, we're looking at another primary election in August. And then, of course, the presidential election in November. Oh, yeah, that one's coming up, too, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Let's not forget about that. It is a big election year. And while I'm here, um, I should mention that WUWM really wants to hear from Wisconsinites and hear from voters about their thoughts on the upcoming elections, what questions you have, what you're thinking about the candidates. Um, And you can tell us all your thoughts um, on a survey that we have posted on our website at WUWM.com. That is also where you can find our voter guide, where we'll be posting information about the candidates in the April 2nd election. Uh, So stay tuned to wuwm.com for that. Emily, thank you so much for talking about the elections with me. You're welcome, and I'll probably be back uh, (laughs) later this year. Hopefully. Emily Files is a WUWM news reporter and editor. Earlier this month, Wisconsin recorded its first tornado in the month of February. It happened in the town of Evansville, in south-central Wisconsin. Though all injuries were minor, at least 20 homes were significantly damaged or destroyed. WUWM Eric Von Fellow Nadia Kelly talks with Milwaukee-based National Weather Service meteorologist Tim Hallback about the February tornadoes and what they could tell us about Wisconsin winters in the future. Can you tell us about the tornadoes that hit Wisconsin earlier this month? Yeah, so we had a rare situation where we got tornadoes in February. Uh, The documentation that we have has never had a tornado occur in February in Wisconsin. The, The database before the 1980s isn't that great, but from what we've got for our records, there's never been a tornado that's happened. So like anything we've told people is... You can get any kind of weather any time of year if the conditions come together and uh, they're just right. So we had a a situation unfold where things got a little bit more perkier than we were expecting initially, at least. Uh, The sun came out, uh, things got pretty warm, and we had a pretty potent low-pressure system come through that 
spun up some storms and uh, created some tornadoes down in the southern part of the state. So, and these were legit tornadoes, not just kind of some brief two-minute, you have zero, hits a couple of tree branches type tornadoes, like life-changing tornadoes for some people that were in the path of particularly the EF2 tornado that went by Evansville um, going over towards Lake Koshkanog. So pretty rare event, uh, something that we had a lot of people ready to, to work on, uh, and they're paying attention to it that evening. In my nine years here, it's one of the, the stronger tornadoes we've had in southern Wisconsin. Um, but the biggest thing that I'll remember from it is just going door to door and talking with people. And every single person I talked to said they got the warning, they knew it was coming, and they were in their basement and in shelter when the tornado came through. So we were pretty lucky from that aspect that there weren't more injuries or fatalities that occurred from it. So we'll use this as a learning experience and you know, things we can tell other people about being prepared and getting those warnings and then acting on them. So you say this is a pretty rare occurrence. Were you pretty surprised by the tornadoes? And just how unusual is it to see tornadoes here in the winter? Well, it's very unusual. One of the things that we typically have is snow cover. And when we have a snowpack, you're not going to get tornadoes when something like that is down. But we had our, our week or two where it was actually winter in January and we got all the snow. But then over the last month or so, all that snowpack eroded which then has made things a little bit easier to, to be warmer now. If we did have the snowpack, we wouldn't have had the tornadoes that occurred. We would have had the system come through. We probably would have had like a rain or something like that, but probably not severe weather. So that's where, you know, the, the rareness of this comes in, where things just came together. And when we talk about the long-term trends of weather and climate, it's hard to attribute climate change to just, did this event happen because climate change is, is happening? You can't, it's hard to do that, but one of the things that we've seen is that the more and more opportunities there are where there's not snowpack in the winter or things are just a little bit warmer, it increases the chances that something like that, when a weather system comes through, we've got, you know, things in place that normally wouldn't be in place. So like the snowpack is a big thing. So Regardless of that, just the weather system itself and getting a tornado that was an EF2 that was on the ground for 26 miles, like that's, that's a really strong tornado compared to a lot of the different tornadoes we've had here over the past 10 to 15 years. I just want to sort of get at the conditions that made it possible for this tornado to happen. Could you explain what exactly causes a tornado? So the first thing is you need a thunderstorm. Well, you don't necessarily need a thunderstorm, but... To get a thunderstorm, there's three main ingredients. There's uh, moisture. You need to have some moisture to make a cloud. The more moisture you have, the more clouds and rainfall you can make. Instability. So this is basically just how fast is air going into the cloud to make it bigger and bigger. So if you've ever sat uh, on in a field or a hill and just watched clouds build in the summertime, uh, that tends to be our most unstable time of the year. Um, so instability and then lift. So something to trigger the motion of the air starting to go up and make the thunderstorms. So those three are just for thunderstorms. When you have tornadoes, there's a fourth ingredient called wind shear. And that's just a measure of how the wind changes from the ground going up through the thunderstorm. So in the days where the wind changes a lot from just right near the ground, 
the wind speed and the direction, that's when you can have days where there's tornadoes. So, mm-hmm. so the day of the weather system coming through was about as expected, but we started clearing out quite a bit right out ahead of where that system was. So the sun was out for much of the day in southern Wisconsin, Iowa, where that system came through, which meant the temperatures were warmer, which when that happens, then your instability is higher. So once that happened, things were more potent than what they had kind of looked like a day or two before. So those were the things that came together, and it just happened to be at the end of the afternoon and early evening when um, those all came together and we were able to make a storm that produced the tornado. How strong were the tornadoes, and how did it affect the Evansville area and its residents? There were two tornadoes. There was one that was an EF1 that was down in uh, Greene County by Judah, uh, Albany is what we've kind of called it. That one was an EF1. And then the the storm, there was a, a merger that happened with the storm, and that's when it got stronger. And we had an EF2 tornado that occurred from Evansville, uh, went near Edgerton, and then ended up going uh, kind of northwest of Lake Koshkanong in Jefferson County. So on the ground for about 26 miles. So when we're rating a tornado, it's based on the damage that, that occurs from it. So on that path of the EF2 tornado, we saw a lot of barns that were destroyed. Um, we had some houses that had the roof was missing on it. Um, so that's what we do after a tornado hits. We go out and we look at the damage. We go house to house, analyze every structure that got hit. And we also talk to the people that were there to, to hear what they had to say. You know, were you home? Did you get the warnings? Was everybody all right? You know, that kind of stuff. For this storm, almost everybody I talked to said, I got the warning on my phone. There was like maybe like a third of the people that went outside to look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and see if they could see it. Most of the other people just went into their basement and uh, turned on the TV, started hearing what was coming their way. So what we found a lot of times is that people get, they look for a second confirming source of uh, information before they seek shelter or do something. So a lot of times people get the first warning and then they'll either turn on the TV, see what the TV meteorologists are saying, or they'll go out and try to look to see if they can see the tornado, which can be dangerous because sometimes you can't see the tornado. Um, for this one, the people saw it and knew the threat was real, so they were in their basement. So thankfully, there, there was only one report of somebody being injured from this. I think they were in their car um, driving uh, when the tornado came through, and they were pushed into the ditch, um, or off the road at least, and uh, had to be transported. But um, th- that was mainly what we heard from a lot of people is they got the warning and they were in their shelter, which is the actions we want to see. So what can Wisconsin's first February tornado tell us about how climate change is affecting where and when this type of weather tends to happen? Like I mentioned, it's hard to attribute one weather event happening because of climate change. Uh, For our our winter this year, it's been a little, it's been more so driven by uh, the El Nino pattern that's been out in the Pacific Ocean. um, And that's, that's affected the overall weather pattern, which has made it warmer here overall. But in terms of just climate change for Wisconsin, uh, a lot of it is dealing with the wintertime and how warm it is. Um, or warmer. Uh, obviously, we'll still have cold spells and things like that, but the frequency of being warmer um, will mean less snowpack, 
um, and maybe a shortening of the the winter season a bit, um, and just more potential reps for when these storm systems come through, that the environments are more so there for maybe severe weather than uh, you know sometimes winter storms. So again, it you know it's hard to attribute one thing to just the climate change. But last year we had tornadoes in late March. Uh, the year before that we had tornadoes in western Wisconsin in December. So. For us, it's just a matter of, you know, we can get severe weather any time of year. So it's going to be important to be prepared for it, uh, even in the wintertime now. I guess when you think about tornadoes in Wisconsin, is there one um, that stands out in your memory? Well, for me personally, I grew up in Fond du Lac, uh, and I watched the Oakfield tornado occur, uh, which was just a few miles to myself. So that's, the in our database, the last F5 tornado that's happened in the state. Uh, that was July 1996 uh, that that tornado happened. That also was the last F4 level or higher tornado that's occurred. Went right through Oakfield, and uh, uh, that was one where a lot of people were lucky because they were at the Fond du Lac County Fair mm-hmm. that night, um, and a lot of people weren't in the city when that strong tornado, violent tornado, came through. So for me, that's that's the big one. Uh, ironically, uh, another one of the worst tornadoes that I've surveyed was the January 2007, I think it was, uh, the tornadoes that came through southeastern Wisconsin. I was actually working in the Chicago Weather Service office at that time, and the storm that went through southeastern Wisconsin actually started in northern Illinois. And that was a day where I was on the evening shift as a forecaster and um, left my house, and it was in the 60s and humid, and I'm like, this is, <laughs> this is not good. We shouldn't be this warm uh, this time of year. So I, I got to work, walked in the door, and our the lead forecaster was putting out a tornado warning. And I was like, oh, so this is how today is going to start. Um, so then that was the first time I've gone out and surveyed tornadoes when there's still snow banks around. Um, but that was probably the, the most impactful tornado that I've at least surveyed or, or been part of in, in my career. So this one uh, this, that just happened, uh, that'll stand out. That'll be top three, <laughs> unless something else goes down in the rest of my career. What do you recommend Wisconsinites do to be prepared and stay safe? So the main thing we always tell people is have multiple ways to get warnings. The uh, Most people that I've ever talked to that have been in the path of a tornado got the warning first over their phone. The wireless emergency alerts that come over your phone are critical to, to be alerted to that. So if you get an alert on your phone, pay attention to it and then seek more information. I, I tell people to turn on the TV meteorologists that you like to pay attention to. Um, they can give you more play-by-play on what's happening and what the risk is for your area. Uh, we talk directly with the TV meteorologists through a, a chat uh, while severe weather is happening so we can relay information back and forth and just the goal is to keep people aware of what's what's happening there. So if you can do your TV stations a favor, don't call and complain that they're cutting in to the programming uh, during severe weather and instead thank them for helping people stay aware of what kind of uh, bad weather might be coming their way. Tim Halbeck is the Warning Coordination Meteorologist at the Milwaukee National Weather Service. He spoke with WUWM's Eric Bond fellow, Nadia Kelly. 
Did you know the largest collection of glass paperweights is in Wisconsin? Or that Wisconsin has one of the only condiment-centered museums in the country? We'll tell you about some of Wisconsin's most unusual museums in about 20 minutes. But first, we'll learn about the history of Milwaukee's Bronzeville neighborhood and what developments are happening there today. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. In the early 20th century, Milwaukee's Bronzeville neighborhood was a hub for Black-owned businesses. But like many of our nation's Black-owned business districts, the neighborhood was destroyed by racist urban renewal projects in the 1950s. Today, redevelopment organizations and local business owners are rebuilding and revitalizing Bronzeville. Robert Biko Baker is an instructor at UW-Milwaukee in the African and African Diaspora Studies Department. He spoke with former Lake Effect producer Mallory Chang about the history of Milwaukee's Bronzeville neighborhood. Early in the mid-20th century, around 1940, uh, Milwaukee's Black population was about 8,000. And by 1950, it had exploded to 21,000. And all across the Midwest and the West, people from were leaving the South, leaving Jim Crow South, and were showing up in industrial areas. And so similarly in Chicago, where there was a Bronzeville neighborhood, Milwaukee's Bronzeville neighborhood started to grow in the 1950s. One of the cool things about Milwaukee is that its migration happened a little bit later than Chicago or Detroit. Prior to 1950, most people came to Milwaukee for the hot jobs, like the tanneries and, 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 the, and the foundries. But by the late 50s, Milwaukee was exploding. And it's a big reason because of the post war automobile boom because of the freeways because of the interstate commerce act uh milwaukee and places in the north started to grow again and so people were coming to milwaukee to work at places like alice chalmers and al smith and Brigham stratton and today 70 years later it's reviving and becoming one of the strongest neighborhoods in in the city and i hope in the region as well you mentioned there's one in Chicago. That's one of the similarities that I noticed when I first moved to Milwaukee. Why is there another Bronzeville in Milwaukee? So I guess, why are there two? And why are there only two in the nation? There are actually other parts of the nation where I think there might be other Bronzevilles, but you know, but it ended up happening was segregation was so strong. It wasn't until the Fair Housing Act of 1968 that African-Americans could actually move around the city and not face de jure segregation. And so you know, African-Americans were forced to live between 12th and 3rd, North and State, and they did their best to create a community, and it was very vibrant. You had people like Duke Ellington and Miles Davis and Hattie McDaniel who would come to Milwaukee. And so similarly to Chicago, they had that rich culture. We had our culture in Milwaukee, too. Throughout the early 20th century, Bronzeville was busy. It was bustling. But when the 1960s came around, the U.S. government decided to incorporate urban renewal projects, which impacted Black neighborhoods all across the country during that time. Specifically with Milwaukee's Bronzeville neighborhood, what happened around that time in the 60s when the government was starting to push these urban renewal projects out? Huge infrastructure projects that were taking place in the middle part of the 20th century. And I-43, which is now runs through a big part of what used to be Bronzeville, was built. But 
unlike other areas, which uh, there was a lot of racial discrimination that went into the destruction of these Black neighborhoods, Milwaukee was a little bit different in that there were several parts of the city, including an Italian neighborhood that the city had labeled as slums. And so at the time, Mayor Zeidler uh, received money because of the 1949 Housing Act, and he decided to first build hillside projects, but destroy parts of the dilapidated housing and, and put a freeway through there. And so Borchard Park, which used to be where the Brewers played, was, you know, ran over by the freeway. And so, but what ended up happening was a lot of people were displaced. A lot of the cultural hotspots and businesses and grocery stores that were up and down Wall Street uh, really displaced. And I think we're still just now getting back to that vibrant community in that part of the city. When the projects were starting in the 60s up until this point, how did these urban renewal projects generationally impact Bronzeville up to today? What ended up happening was there was a lot of displacement and there was a lot of people who sort of moved away from the area and moved northwest. And uh, a lot of the cultural businesses and striving economic opportunities were sort of moved away. And, And a lot of times they haven't been replaced and they're just starting to be replaced. And so... Unfortunately, uh, between the 60s and I'd say early 90s, there was actually a lot of crime in like places like such as Hillside and Lapham Park. Uh, and beginning in the, I would say, early 2000s, we start to see that change. But between the 60s and early 2000s, those neighborhoods were really much, pretty much suffering. You grew up in Milwaukee and you went to UWM with Milwaukee's Bronzeville Neighborhoods designation as one of the top places to visit by the New York Times. What does this symbolize now? What does this mean for the future of what Bronzeville can be? I think it's an awesome opportunity. I mean, from America's Black Holocaust Museum to Pete's Market, there's so much opportunity. And I think we really need we really need to give props to all the woman Malele Cox, who really championed this effort. I, I've worked with her for the last 15 years on trying to make sure that this, this place was something special. And before her, uh, Alderman Mike McGee really fought for that. And so I think it, it takes long-term vision to, to transform an area that has gone through so many problems, including a 1967 rebellion, which saw large parts of the city being burnt. But that shows what's possible when young people, young leaders have the vision to bring art and culture. You know, it's such an economic driver all across the world. And we have some of the best, most talented artists that I know. And so it's great that we finally have a home. And from your perspective, as your multitude of identities, as a community member, as an academic, as a lecturer at UWM, what does the future of Bronzeville look like to you? And what would the future of the neighborhood mean to the city as a whole? You know, I have so many talented friends, artistic friends who leave and move to places like LA or Atlanta or Houston. And if we can create an area that invests specifically in Black artists and Black creatives and people from the North Side, we can have an economic engine that can not only transform Bronzeville, but the entire city. Similarly to, you know, Harlem in the, in the early 20s and 50s, or Atlanta and Buckhead, there's so much that can happen when you have places for artists to create. And you know, now African-Americans are up to nearly 40% of the, of the city's population. And so that's a quick turnaround in, a, in 50 years. And some people I know in, with our segregated past, we struggle with race identity and stuff like that. But to me, that's a huge opportunity. When you have such a young community of color, I think there's so much that can happen. And I'm excited about the future.
you know, I think in 20, 30 years, we could see a new Milwaukee simply because we have a place to live and create. And I just want to ask you on a personal note, you mentioned that a lot of your friends and artists who grew up in Milwaukee left Milwaukee. You're one of them. You left Milwaukee for a little bit for like 15 years and then you came back. What drew you in to come back to return to the city? You know, one of the things about Milwaukee is that you never really leave. You know, when I was in LA, people always made fun of me because as much I've talked about my city too much. And so, um, you know, there was this, I used to teach at this school and I had these students, it was an alternative school. I had a really small class uh, and, you know, about three of my students were murdered. And I looked at the picture and I realized I had developed all these skills and talents living in LA and working for, you know, hip hop magazines. And so I really believe that I could uh, affect change in the city. And so that's a big reason why I came back. And, you know, why did I stay? Oh my goodness, I don't know. Every winter, every January, February, I, I beat myself up. But, you know, I really believe in UWM. You know, I really believe in Brownsville. I really believe in the North side and the South side. And I think that if more people like myself come back, we can really turn things around. And I'm hearing more and more of my friends who are thinking about either buying houses or investing in studios. And so hopefully we can have a renaissance. Thank you so much, Robert, for being here on Lake Effect. I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you, Mallory. Robert Biko Baker is an instructor at UWM in the African and African Diaspora Studies Department. He spoke with former Lake Effect producer Mallory Chang in 2022. Yellowstone National Park was established in 1872, before there was even a National Park Service. So management of the park fell to the Secretary of the Interior, which employed the U.S. Army, specifically its black regiments, to help manage and protect the land. These men were also known as Buffalo Soldiers. About 500 of them served in Yosemite, Sequoia, and General Grant National Parks, playing a huge role in building the infrastructure we still see today. To learn about the Buffalo Soldiers and their legacy, Derek Mosley, director of Marquette University Law School's Lubar Center, speaks with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. So at the end of the Civil War, there were 180,000 African-Americans who had served uh, with the Union Army. And although they had served with the Union Army, they were not allowed to serve during peacetime. And since they couldn't serve during peacetime, all that changed in 1866 when they came up with the Army uh, Reorganization Act, which actually made Black soldiers able to serve as full-time professional soldiers. And when they did that, they created four units, the uh, 9th Cavalry, the 10th Cavalry, the 24th Infantry, and the 25th Infantry Divisions. Most people are familiar with their name. You mentioned it, the Buffalo Soldiers, which was a name that was given to them by our native populations because they thought that these soldiers, their hair looked exactly like the tuft of hair between the, the antlers of buffalo. That curly hair between the antlers of buffalo were uh, similar to the hair of the buffalo soldiers, so hence the name buffalo soldiers. The national parks were started in 1872, the first one being Yellowstone. And you start a national park, but you don't start a national park service. So what happened? Of course, 
you know, farmers had their their cattle grazed on the national park and uh, sheep were grazing in the national park and people were tearing, uh, cutting down trees and they were panning for gold and all these things, uh, poaching, uh, what, deer, elk, buffalo, bison, beaver, everything. And so they had to come up with a way to police the parks, basically. The only organization that had the mobility and the actual logistics to do this was the United States Army. And they said, well, we have these uh, African-American soldiers who have just become professional soldiers. Let's have them monitor the parks. And that's how it all started. That's how we had the black uh, soldiers, also known as the Buffalo Soldiers, become our first park rangers, even before the park service was even started. Right. So you mentioned some of the problems people were trying to manage and face as they were expanding and creating parks. So can you share some of the job duties that the Buffalo Soldiers had as park rangers? Yeah, so the um, they had a, a lot of duties. This is what they did. So one, they created the roads and other infrastructures that you see in the park. Uh, they created the trail that everybody travels, which was a trail, but now is a road that everybody travels through uh, Sequoia uh, National Park, the giant forest you know, the giant redwoods, the road that you go along or that you walk along, um, that was created by the Buffalo Soldiers. They created the trail that takes you all the way up to Mount Whitney, which to me is amazing, right? Because Mount Whitney is the largest of the uh, peaks in the contiguous United States. So they created that trail that went all the way up there. Um, they were responsible for patrolling poachers, make sure poachers weren't killing the elk, the deer, the beaver, the bison. Also, those people were trying to search for gold, so they're damaging the natural pristine uh, landscape by trying to find gold. Uh, they're cutting down timber to build their own log cabins on their land because there was all this timber, all these trees, and no one was uh, patrolling them, so they were responsible for that. And, you know, a piece of it that people aren't aware of is that uh, the 25th Infantry were a bicycle unit, and a lot of people weren't really familiar with that. So the Army wanted to see if bicycles could be used in place of horses. Horses were expensive, right? You had to feed them, you had to water them, you had to house them. So they said, what if we use bikes uh, in warfare? And so they used the 25th Infantry to start these bicycle corps. And the bicycle corps became part of the park service. They would ride bikes throughout the park service and um, maintain order. The, the thing for me, Audrey, is, you know, this is still the 1800s, like 1800s, early 1900s. And so the perception of African-Americans at that time by whites was that they were still kind of like second-class citizens. So I just think of this park rangers, right, who are there, who are responsible for stopping people from poaching. And now you have people with guns that you walk upon and say, hey, you can't, a black man in this society says, hey, you can't uh, poach these animals. That had to be a really delicate balance they had to walk there. But what they did was phenomenal for our country and we know very little we don't you don't learn about it really in history books and so i just wanted to bring that to attention because there's so much more that they're responsible for and in the very you know complex history and, and the negative history that we have in the u.s of expanding west of the whole idea of manifest destiny um the buffalo soldiers also had kind of this as you said it was like a delicate role so what they had to do in relationship as soldiers serving their government, and then it was what they do for the parks. But then it was also, at times, they also had to clear out Native tribes as well. So there's this violent aspect to their jobs. Absolutely. And that, that came from the uh, Indian Wars as well. They had also been known 
because they had a history of uh, being able to speak a lot of native languages because a lot of African-Americans, when they escaped slavery, became entrenched in some native population so they could speak the language. And they were also used, as you're absolutely right, to, to move off our native and indigenous population off of their lands as we started to move west. So it was... Um, you know, they had a good history with the national parks, but then a bad history as far as American history is concerned about our indigenous and native populations. Most of the Buffalo soldiers were led by white officers, captains, but some were led by black Americans as well. One person in particular was Captain Charles Young. He commanded Troop L of the 9th Cavalry and was the highest ranking black officer in the army at the time. And later he was also named acting superintendent of Sequoia National Park, also the first black person to hold that position. Uh, Let's talk about him a little bit. He's a great person in the history of the Buffalo soldiers. Absolutely. Not to mention, he was also the third African-American graduate of West Point. So Charles Young uh, was really instrumental in Sequoia National Park. I mean, all those things we just mentioned, right? So the the roads that go through the giant forest, the roads all the way up to Mount Whitney, the peak of Mount Whitney, that would have never happened if it wasn't for Charles Young. He was the one who was the the, um, catalyst behind all those things happening. He was an ecologist sort of by trade and he was uh he loved nature and the thing about charles young which is probably the thing that uh, most people don't talk about the most is that he loved being a soldier and he took a lot of pride in being a soldier so whenever you hear people talk about charles young his uniform was always pressed he was always looking the part of a soldier and he demanded that um, his unit looked the same way And so they went a long way into improving the relations between blacks and whites out west because he had these this unit of african-american soldiers these buffalo soldiers who when whites saw them they commanded a lot of respect right they they looked good their uniforms were pressed they knew what they were doing and um, they were providing a service so he goes a long way into all the things that we just talked about as far as the national park before there was a national park service before all that started he was responsible for putting those things into place. So as we look back on the role the Buffalo Soldiers played in the national parks, you know, we're talking about legacy and contributions, and yet there's still this misperception that is longstanding, especially in outdoors and recreation. It's a very white space, but the very places that mostly white people enjoy were built by these black soldiers. How do you want the legacy to be viewed and to really make us think differently about like how we enjoy our outdoor spaces? So there's a person that people should become familiar with. Uh, He's a national park ranger. His name is Shelton Johnson. And Shelton Johnson is actually responsible for us knowing anything about the um, Buffalo Soldiers being the first park rangers. In fact, Shelton is assigned to Yosemite. And he actually, um, when he reports to work, he actually dresses the part of a Buffalo soldier. So he wears the same exact uniform and he stops and talks to people that go through and he tells that legacy. He always says that we were the first, we being uh, African-Americans were the first black park rangers, but we are the least to take advantage of the outside spaces. So he's responsible for doing a lot of podcasts. He's responsible for doing a lot of videos on YouTube to get black citizens to know about their role when it comes to the national parks. And he is a phenomenal. I don't know if you had an opportunity, Audrey, to watch any of his videos or to see him on being interviewed, but he takes a lot of pride in our history. And I say our history because it is our history. It's not just black history. It's American history. And he takes a lot of pride in the role that uh, African-Americans 
played when it comes to the expansion out to the West and especially to those outdoor spaces, because you were right. Those spaces we typically view to be uh, white spaces. But I think with the work of Ranger Johnson, things are starting to change a little bit. I'll be honest. I grew up in Chicago and I didn't do a lot of, well, let me just say, I didn't do any camping. All right. So, and it wasn't until I moved to Wisconsin that I started to do a lot of camping. And it's one of the spaces that I, I completely enjoy. It's, you know, being one with nature, being with the land, you know, sleeping outside, all of those things. I just think it's important. And I, I really want to give a shout out to uh, uh, Ranger Johnson just for that, because he made it very important. He's also really responsible for African-American youth in urban areas joining the Young Rangers program. So these young people are going to Sequoia, are going to Yellowstone, are going to Yosemite, and they are becoming park rangers for the summer. And I think that's, that goes a long way, not only to just uh, better themselves, right, to see another part of the country they probably wouldn't have seen, but also for them to be seen by other people and knowing that these aren't these are spaces for all of us. Absolutely. Well, Derek, thank you so much for joining me today to share more. I loved our conversation. Oh, thank you. And thank you for letting me share uh, the story of the Buffalo Soldiers. Buffalo Soldier, Derek Mosley is the director of Marquette University Law School's Lubar Center for Public Policy Research and Civic Engagement. He spoke to Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski last year. We'll explore some of Wisconsin's most unique museums next on Lake Effect. On 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Wisconsin is known for a lot of things. It's dairy, it's beer, and it's oddities. The state is home to many unique places, including a wide variety of weird museums, as writer T. Krulos details in his article featured in this month's Milwaukee Magazine. Krulos joins me now to share a few of those unique museums that you can find right here in Wisconsin. T, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. Thanks for having me. So there are many odd museums in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, in fact, a number that could not be included on this list because, you know, you only have so much space on the page, as it were. Right. But you have a great list of some interesting museums. I'm going to start with one that really caught my eye. It's also what the list starts with, the National Mustard Museum. I know. It's a, a very odd place. I mean, all these places are great because they're so unique. And like you say, Wisconsin is very rich with them. So I had no trouble finding stuff to write about. But um, yeah, the Mustard Museum is just outside of Madison, and it has over 6,000 mustard bottles and related items. One of the best parts of it, though, is they have a gift shop that is also a tasting room. So you can sample over 100 different types of mustards. So if you love mustards, this is a, a must stop on your list. I feel like mustard is one of those things that you go, well, how many kinds of mustard can there be? And then you look in your refrigerator and you go, I sure. have six kinds of mustard in this refrigerator. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's one of the few condiment museums in the country. The other one would be out um, Heinz, you know, has a pretty good museum. But sure. So if you like ketchup and mustard, that might be your <laughs> epic road trip there. So the next one we're going to look at, uh, this is about a, a history that I think some Wisconsinites are familiar with and then others are surprised to learn about. Uh, this is the History Museum at the Castle, and it looks at uh, Houdini. I know. It's such a great story. And I, like you say, I don't think it's recognized enough. I mean, we have the bronze fonds, which is great, but Houdini was actually an amazing person who spent his formative years, uh, living in Appleton first. He lived there for about four years. And then they actually lived in Milwaukee for a while before they moved on to New York. So the History Museum at the Castle in Appleton has this great exhibit called AKA Houdini, in which you kind of journey through his life and they have some really fun interactive displays where you can kind of try out some of his escape tricks and magic tricks. And um, it's just a really nice recognition of this famous resident of Appleton. Yeah. Now, uh, the next museum, I think, is going to be very interesting for polka lovers. Uh, (laughs) And when I was thinking about, like, an accordion museum, this is an accordion museum, I wondered what that would look like. And then I went, oh, well, they're they're a complex instrument. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, not surprising that this would be in Wisconsin, way up in Superior, Wisconsin, they have this huge collection of over 2,500 accordions. And like you say, most people associate that with polka, and that's certainly a key part of that genre. But um, they have accordions from all over the world because they are used in different music styles. And uh, the museum there is really great because it's in an old church, and so they have the museum display. They also have a venue where they of course, have accordion-centric performances. And they have a repair shop and a really big archive of sheet music and other stuff related to accordions. So it's really an important cultural part of the state. And that's called a world of accordions, right? (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, and speaking of the world, the next museum we'll be looking at, I I think some people, again, are going to know bits of this history. A lot of different towns have kind of a circus clown history here in Wisconsin. Uh, But this is the International Clown Hall of Fame and Research Center. (laughs) Yes. So um, this uh, location, by the way, has moved around a little bit. I remember back in the day, it was in like the the basement level of the Plankinton building, which is also where the WUWM studios were at the time. (laughs) So you were neighbors with this at one point. And um, yeah, Baraboo has such a rich history of the circus. The Ringling Brothers were from Baraboo. And it became like a circus capital of the country for a while. A lot of circuses had their headquarters there. So it's a good spot for the International Clown Hall of Fame where they have pictures of famous clowns as well as their rubber noses and giant shoes and costumes and props that they used. Um, Like I noted in this article, might not be a great place for some people to go because some people do have a pretty intense fear of clowns. I don't. I mean, once in a while, I find them kind of creepy, but I think I have a normal level of reaction to them. <laughs> I will say my um, my arch nemesis <laughs> is the uh, probably still more famous Joy Powers, 
who is a clown. Really? Joy Powers the Clown, yes. <laughs> Do you think that she is in the International Clown Hall of Fame? Look, she might be. She was very well known. Anytime I would Google my name, it would, Joy Powers the Clown <laughs> came up right away. Oh, that's too funny. <laughs> So the final museum that we're going to talk about, uh, this is the Bergstrom Mahler Museum of Glass. I've, I've heard this is just a beautiful museum. It is. It is very uh, beautiful. I mean, there's so much glass in it, and then when the light comes through the right way, you know, it's really quite dazzling. And it's home to the largest collection of glass paperweights in the world, which is over uh, 6,000 pieces. So it's a lot of glass. I mean, it does make me, being a bigger guy, it makes me a little <laughs> nervous in places like this because I'm afraid I'm going to break something. But, yeah, very beautiful um, individual pieces of glasswork there. Now, uh, of course, like with any list, you couldn't include every museum. But yeah. what were some of your favorite museums that didn't make the cut? Well, one I really wanted to include was the Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame in Hayward, um, which is kind of famous because the museum is shaped like a giant muskie that you can walk into and see fishing artifacts. Uh, however, they're only open seasonally, so you can go visit there this summer. But, you know, this being a winter issue, I wanted to include places that people could go out and visit right away. So that was one. Um, and then Redner's Rescued Cat Figurine Museum. I know you've had them on the show before. I wrote about them last year, which is why I didn't include them. But they have an overwhelming collection of cat knickknacks. Again, I was a little nervous because there's so many <laughs> fragile pieces. But, you know, and, and the good, good thing about them is it's for a good cause. The money that they raise, they give to cat shelters and stuff like that. Oh, and then last one I think I'll mention, I was just in Lake Geneva. We talked a little bit about that before we went on the air, and I went to the Geneva Lake Museum, which is a cool little museum. I, I love that they have kind of their own take on, like, streets of old Milwaukee when you, you first walk in. And um, they've got a nice little display called The Wizard of Lake Geneva, which is about Dungeons & Dragons, which came from there, and this year is their 50th anniversary. So um, that was something I just checked out a couple days ago and wasn't on my list, but it is now. <laughs> All right. Well, T, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thanks for having me. T. Krulos is a local writer whose article on Wisconsin's weird museums is featured in this month's Milwaukee Magazine. You can find all of our previous conversations with Milmag writers at wuwm.com. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll dig into Wisconsin's new legislative voting maps. Plus, we'll learn how students at UW-Milwaukee are being impacted by the cuts to diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect. On listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. PR.